This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Ellie Beer, founder of United Hatzalah in Israel. How are you, Ellie? I'm doing great. 2018. How could I not feel so Unbelievable. What a great way to usher in the new year by getting to speak to one of Israel's most inspiring figures. And Ellie, let's let's start from the beginning. I don't imagine that you were born with a Hatzalah jacket on. In fact, I don't think Hatzalah jackets existed when you were born. So where were you born? What was your childhood like? Where were you raised? Tell us a little bit about your early history. But funny enough, today, I was wearing this all day because it's freezing here in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. It's actually raining and cold uh, for a change. It was very warm the uh, last few days. And one of our volunteers who, who saved someone's life yesterday, while his wife was in the hospital giving birth, he went to save a woman who was hurt in an accident. So he actually left the hospital, went to save someone. So I heard about this, and I sent him a little tiny little jacket for his son, who was just born. So his wife was giving birth in the hospital. He went to save someone. And I made, I said, his son should be born into Hatzalah. And that's how, uh, I wish I was born into Hatzalah. <laughs> well, I think Hatzalah instead was born from you. So I, we'll get there. But uh, where were you raised? I was way, born and raised here in uh, Israel, in Jerusalem, in a little tiny community in Jerusalem called Bayezagai, which is uh, near Yad Vashem. People know that, that uh, place. And I grew up there as a little child, and uh, my ma- my parents were American. That's how I know English. So. And did you, uh, from an early age, were you interested in medicine or in health services? No, I never really knew that I'm going to fall into this thing, saving lives. It was never one of my things. I grew up as a child. My dream was to be a pilot. I didn't even, uh, when I was a kid, I saw these planes up on the sky, and I didn't even think one day I'll be in a saving lives on a motorcycle. So um, when I was six years old, that's when everything changed. Uh, I grew up in a small community, and uh, uh, while I was coming back from school in the afternoon of a Friday, and uh, we were waiting next to the bus stop, they had a terrible, terrible terror attack not far from the school. And a bus blew up in front of everyone in the neighborhood. No one actually saw a bus attack before in Israel. So what year was this? 1978. And uh, this was a terrible incident. Many people were hurt. Many people were killed. We knew people that were hurt and killed. And for me as a child, getting exposed to a thing like that made me think a lot while I was growing up what I want to be when I grow up. And I remember one person laying on the floor screaming for help. And he was an older guy. I don't know if he was older my age today, 40, 44, I mean, or maybe 70. I didn't know, you know, the kid. And I just saw him yelling and screaming for help. And I, and I looked at him and I got scared and I ran away, leaving him on the floor. And that, seeing that person on the floor and knowing I couldn't help him, designed my rest of my life saying, I want to save people's lives. And that's how it happened. I really never dreamt of falling into it until I saw that terror attack. Did you join the army? Did you become a medic in the army? What was kind of the trajectory from there? So. Really, this is actually before the army. When I was 15, I saw a little ad on a tree. You know, Israel, they have trees for for beauty, but also to hang up uh, signs 
and uh, <laughs> people could hang up their apartment for sale or whatever. And, and uh, we had a sign on a tree saying an EMP course. Uh, this was done by the city of Jerusalem together with the ambulance service in Jerusalem. And they were doing like an EMT course for children, age of 15 and up. And I, of course, uh, was 15 years old. So I went to do the course. And it was a beautiful time I had. It was like two weeks, summertime, in the forest in Jerusalem, which is beautiful. And I learned how to save people's lives. We actually took the dolls, we did CPR with dolls, and I was 15 years old. I was so excited. I actually thought I became a doctor after that two weeks. And I was sure the next day, after I finished the course, I get the certificate. I was so excited. I'm going to start saving people's lives. And that's when my disappointment started. Why is that? Because um, I went to join the ambulance service in uh, Jerusalem. And I realized saving a life is a hard job. You don't don't save people so fast. I mean, for a year and a half, I was a volunteer. I helped many, many people, transport many people. But someone was in a cardiac arrest or someone was not breathing, never got to save them. We learned in a course that when someone is not breathing, you do compressions, you do breathing, and try resuscitating this person, and that's how you save someone. I realized we never get there on time. By the time someone calls us for someone he loves not breathing, if someone is actually not breathing and someone who saw this call, they didn't get an ambulance on the road, so we had a team waiting for calls in the station in one part of the city. And in order to get to that other part of the city where that person was injured or unconscious or not breathing, it would take us an average of 12 to 20 minutes, not as we the part of the city. We were never so fast to get there in time to start resuscitating and saving someone. And that's when I realized that a dream of mine of saving lives is not going to happen if I'm in the back of the ambulance. And what, what really made my decision to, to leave the ambulance service is uh, when I was 16 and a half years old, a year and a half after volunteering, we got a call about a seven-year-old boy who was not breathing. And a mother found him literally on the table when he was eating lunch, choked in a hot dog. And the mother found him not breathing. She called for help, screaming hysterically, please, please come fast to help him. We were the only ambulance available in the city. And we had to come from the other side of town. And when we arrived, it was 21 minutes after his child choked. Aye. And the parents were yelling at us. And the mother was hysterical. She was saying, you, like she was cursing us time we came because she knew like if we're going to save this child he's going to be brain dead and we tried working on the kid and we couldn't do anything we tried to get the object out of the child's neck uh, throat it was very hard she was really breathing not breathing for so long his heart was not no pulse in his heart and a doctor who uh, passed by and saw the ambulance downstairs ran up to to help because it's a small community it's not like in new york you see ambulances everywhere. You don't want the help from the neighbor, but this is like a small community. And what happened was we arrived, and a doctor comes, and he says, there's nothing to do. Just bring a sheet to cover this child. And that was the worst moment of my life, seeing a seven-year-old boy who had a chance of living. The doctor lived two blocks away, but no one even thought of calling him. Ambulances service, they get a call. They send their people. They don't think of calling the doctor who two blocks away. Every ambulance in the world is the same. They get a call. They send their people. And I realized ambulances don't save lives. People save lives. If we could get the people all around the communities to know about emergencies way before the ambulances arrive there, we will actually make a difference. Um, 
And that's how I started United Cell. But the problem was we got together a bunch of volunteers in Israel to want to do this. We were 15 volunteers who said, you know what, in our community, we're going to go do this. And I said, if we have 15 volunteers in a small place like this, every emergency, we will be there 90 seconds. And you were, still, you were still a teenager at this time? I was 16 and a half years old. And this idea just kind of crystallized in your mind to crowdsource, really, to use a contemporary term, to crowdsource medical care where you get everyone who's locally on the scene to be able to participate. Uh, that idea just sort of emerged to you? Uh, first of all, I thought a lot about it because I was in the ambulance for a year and a half. And I right. realized every single time we are getting a call, we're the first ones on the scene. And it didn't make sense. When we got the scenes and we saw people die, and I saw people there and I said, why the hell didn't you do anything? You know, like it bothered me, like people were just waiting for us to do. The guy's bleeding to death. Why did you put your hand on his, on his room and then stop the bleeding? People were scared to touch people. And by the way, the idea of Hatzalah was already existing in New York and in Brooklyn and other places in New York, but I didn't really exactly know what they're doing because we didn't have internet then and I was Israeli, so we didn't have a connection. But I, I thought if we could get together, we could actually do a 90-second response way before everyone. The problem was we needed to know about the emergency. Like, if we don't know about an emergency happening, it'll be the same situation like that doctor who passed by the ambulance. So we, we need to know if someone calls for an ambulance, the biggest challenge we have, how do we know about the emergency? And that was the biggest problem we had. Now, this was in the days before internet, and I would imagine before GPS even, at least commercially available GPS. How did you resolve that challenge? Well, so this was way before everything. We had a black and white TV at home. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I used to watch Superman without knowing the color blue on his veil. We were actually connected to the ambulance service. So I said, you know what? How we would we know that about emergencies? We have to go meet the ambulance guys and convince them that we're doing a good job in the ambulance, but we want to do it before the ambulance as well. And we did a lousy job because when we went to see them, they literally kicked us out five minutes after the meeting started. They said, we're not interested in the service. We have a great service. We met the heads of the unions of the ambulance service in Israel. Nice people, but tough when they come to offer them some volunteer service. So they, they probably were threatened by it, I would imagine, right? I don't know if they were threatened. They were literally not understanding that there is a need. They thought it's their responsibility. You know, don't forget ambulances cost money in Israel, and they're not interested in someone else touching the patient before they come. So they actually did not appreciate the idea of volunteers arriving before they So we decided, what do we do now? Like, we had, we had no choice. Either we have to stop this great idea and just leave it alone. And some volunteers said, you know what, we're out. If we don't have emergencies, how would we know about it? So we had a few options, either getting a phone number and telling people if you have a call, emergency call us and the nine and the like the number of the ambulance, which is ridiculous. Call two numbers to let us know about it and to let them know about it. But that would be a lot harder. First of all, a phone line in those days was very hard to get in Israel. You would wait months till you get a phone line. So what happened was I decided, since I'm Israeli, and we invented a very, very special unique technique in Israel called chutzpah. <laughs> You know, we should use this to get the emergency. They, so my friend says, what do you mean? I said, listen, we have, we have a sort of Spider-Man. How does Spider-Man know about all these emergencies happening? So he used to read the comic books. He's got Spider-Man. He used to have like a scanner, a walkie-talkie scanner, and listen to all the emergencies the police have, right? We could do the same. We're in Israel. Interception. 
The only way to do things in Israel is if you don't directly through the door, you go through the window. And we decided to buy these police scanners and tap into the emergency calls. Unbelievable. How was that? It was amazing because we, my father actually is a great man. My father was a big Zionist. He came to Israel, loving Israel. He came and he had a few businesses, and one of them was a bookstore. So I used to work in the bookstore because I was a terrible student. I, I hardly been to school, and I was always in bookstores. So I used to, my father sponsored this police scanner. I convinced him that it's 100% legal. He did not know exactly what it is. And I said, Dad, it's 100% legal and there's no problem, which I didn't know if it was true or not, but I knew that this is the right thing to do. And we bought these two police scanners, and we had turns who's going to listen in certain hours. I was listening into the calls, and I hear ambulances, dispatches to different parts of the city, but we were not there. And then all of a sudden, I hear a call coming into the neighborhood where we were. And this was in Baifagat. And an ambulance is getting dispatched for a 70-year-old man who was hit by a car. Address right around the corner from my father's bookshop. And that's where I am. I was working there then. And I left the cash register open. I just ran out with the scanner. And I ran towards the emergency. And I see like 20 people around this older person who's on the floor. And people are not just are not touching him because they're scared to touch him. And he was hit by a car. And he was bleeding terribly from his neck. He was just bleeding terribly. And uh, uh, I said to myself, if I don't stop his bleeding, he's going to be dead fast. So I, I didn't have any medical equipment on me. I had no bandages. So I decided to improvise, right? And I, I'll take, I took off my yarmulke. And it's a cloth. I mean, it's not the best thing to do when you have uh, other options. So I just folded my yarmulke and I, I pushed it in straight into his neck where he was bleeding from. And I just pushed it in until he stopped bleeding. And the ambulance came like 20 minutes later and they took him to the hospital. And when they took him, he was still breathing on his own. That means he was still alive. I wasn't sure what's going to happen with him. Uh, and then two days later, I get a phone call from his son. He says, are you really here? I said, yes. He said, well, you treated my father two days ago and uh, we called up this guy and by the guy, I said, yeah. He said, well, my father woke up this morning in Hadassah Hospital. And we told him a story how a young boy came and we saved him. And he would like to thank you for saving his life. Could you come to the hospital? I said, of course I should come. And uh, I went over and I was so excited. This is like winning the lottery. I was so excited. I was 16 and a half years old. I just saved someone after one and a half years trying to save someone in an ambulance. And when I got there, I see this person on the bed. He's very weak. And he says to me, come over, boy. I want to give you a hug. And I went over to him. He gave me this beautiful hug, most amazing hug I got. And when he took his hands off me, I saw he had, his, he had in his arm a number. And that's, that was it. That, that moment, I didn't need anything else. And I got addicted. So it's like, you know, you, get, um, you see one thing in your life and it changes your life. That was that one thing, seeing the number of a person I just saved his life. He was a Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz. Simply, I didn't even operate on him. I didn't find a big cure for his disease. I just went over and I stopped completely with my yama. And that was it. And if I said if I could save one person, I could probably save two people. And that's what we started doing, getting more and more volunteers. We had 15 volunteers then. And we got, quickly, we started growing from neighborhood to neighborhood and getting more and more people. Once that story got out, did it give you some legitimacy? Did it uh, create a sense of credibility with the ambulance corps? Like, at some point, obviously, this had to go from 
this bunch of kids running around with police scanners to something a little bit more official. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been to your headquarters today, and I'm sure there was many years in between that. Sort of how did you take the leap from a bunch of ragtag kids to actually something more formal? Well, it took years because don't forget, Israel is a very interesting country. When it comes to <laughs> bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the bureaucracy comes from Europe actually, European mentality of bureaucracy. I think unions are very important, but not when it comes to saving lives. And monopolies are not good when it comes to saving lives. Or any monopoly is not good. America is actually very good in making sure there's no monopolies and have competition. We were not trying to compete with the immigrant service. We were just trying to fill in a gap of time, the essence of time. That's the OR thing. So when we came up with new ideas, we were the first ones in the world to create volunteers on motorcycles responding to calls, like an ambulance motorcycle, we call it an ambulance. And people said, what is this thing? Is this, is this real? I said, yes, it's real. And, and people said, is the government going to give you permission to do this? I said, we're not going to ask the government. We're going to do this because it's important to do it. And the government is not going to even know it's not official because we're going to make it look so official. <laughs> but that's how we started this organization actually with lots of chutzpah, but knowing that this is the right thing to do. So he asked me if eventually, yes, we got recognized. I can tell you that number one of the Israel police was here just a couple months ago, and he was here, and he was, he was in the Shin Bet, you know, the secret service of Israel. Right. And now he became the head of the police, and he like, came for an hour for a visit, ended up after three hours. He says, I have to rush to meet the prime minister, and I'm going to rush. And he asked for, could you help me? with four ambicycles to, I need a brigade to get there fast because he's the head of the police. I said, you want to arrow ambicycles near your own? He said, no, everyone's going to move to you. Not <laughs> solo escort. So actually, he gave him a short escort to the prime minister's office. But the funny part is when he was going out of the building of United Atella, where you were invited and everyone else was invited to come see, he says to me, Ellie, you guys made the biggest life-saving revolution in Israel. And I said to him, that's a great feeling to hear this from the head of the police. It's not like you know, some, some friend or supporter from Boca Raton is telling you this is the police. It's not like I'm impressing any supporter. He says, listen, for years I was following you because I see my shop, my son, every time they have an emergency and he's, he's by me for Shabbat, having Friday night dinner. And he says, my son doesn't drive on Shabbat, but every time he's by me for Shabbat, and he's sitting here and having a Shabbat dinner. Every single Shabbat dinner, he's running out of emergency. And I want to know, what the heck is this thing? Why are these guys so connected? He's not, he's not getting money for this. He's, what is he getting for this? Like, why is he leaving his family, my family, when he's running out of emergency? And now that I came here, I realized this magnet that so many thousands of people, 4,000 people in Israel, are running out to almost 1,000 emergencies a day. And where is this idea coming from? And one of you says, this is the biggest life-saving revolution. Think about all the people who are suffering from different diseases and different illnesses and, and everything. These people don't get together to the amount of people who die from waiting for help. Normal people have a cardiac arrest. They're not supposed to be dead. 90% chance of saving a cardiac arrest. If you get there within the first two minutes with a defibrillator, you're saving that person. There is no reason why a person in a car accident, if he's losing blood, should be dead, or else it's a multi-trauma and a terrible situation. If you get there in time and you stop that bleeding, you're saving that person. We had a kid yesterday who was uh, choking on a candy 
in the kindergarten in Israel. One minute after he started choking, a volunteer was passing by on the same street, driving an ambicycle, got the call from our command center through a GPS app that we created that knows how to calculate who are the closest five volunteers to have the emergency. This volunteer was in the school, ran over the child, did the Heimlich maneuver, saved that little child's life. And that's a life that was saved because of a volunteer. He doesn't get paid for it. His motivation is 10 times more than someone who would get paid for that. I know you, you say that people don't get paid but at the same time, it costs a tremendous amount of money to run an operation like this, every ambucycle and, and all the medical technology. And I know at this point, unlike the early days when you might have been using your yarmulke, nowadays you have sophisticated, cutting-edge technology. So how did you become someone who was able to raise this kind of incredible amount of money? I'm sure many people were drawn to the cause, but you know, like in any great cause, you start as an idealist, and then in order to grow it, you have to become someone who can sustain it. And that requires finding the funds and doing all of the mundane tasks to build an organization. How did you develop those skills and, and what was that process like? Well, I never learned none of these skills. So in order to raise money to buy medical equipment and not yarmulkes, because don't forget, today, 4,000 volunteers, large amount of them don't wear yarmulkes. Some of them are not Jewish. Us women don't wear yarmulkes. Maybe they could take off the tichel. <laughs> but you can buy the real medical equipment. So where does that come from? Well, I would say that it's one of the biggest wonders of life, how a person like me who never, I was always embarrassed to ask people for money, literally embarrassed because my parents, I was embarrassed to ask them for money for my own sake. I was like, I felt bad asking my parents to buy, to buy food. You know, like I wanted to buy myself a shawarma. I was embarrassed. You know, like I never asked my parents for money. I said, I'm going to go work and make my own money. I was literally working from the age of 12 just to make sure that I had my own money. I don't have to ask my parents. So I tell you, it's funny because we started very, very small. We had very, very small needs. We needed a few bandages, oxygen tanks. Who dreamt of a defibrillator? I'm talking about 1989. Defibrillator was just a dream. We heard about it. It was in hospitals, but we never saw a defibrillator on the road. And then all of a sudden I said, you know what? I want to have every volunteer with a defibrillator. I want to have real oxygen tanks. For everyone, I don't want to share oxygen things. We used to literally share equipment and say, okay, I'm going to have equipment Sunday. You'll have it Monday and Tuesday. Right. And I'm lucky that day I have the equipment I can save someone. The other day I can actually use my arm. So we, we decided one day we're going to enhance the ability of us to save lives and buy real medical equipment and all these things. And I realized how much money it costs. And I started asking my friends and volunteers, guys, you know what? Could you afford to buy a medical kit? you afford to buy a defibrillator? And people said, you know, volunteers said, yes, we have money. We'll buy some of our Sadaka money. We'll buy a defibrillator. And I said, wow, volunteers are giving their own money. And I realized I'm giving my own money. And my parents, I asked them for some money. And I realized more and more people are giving money from their own. And then I started getting other people. I said, you know what? I met a lot of people in Israel who are very, very charitable towards this organization because it's a grassroots organization. You're not giving like a foundation or whatever. This is finding the right, the cause, giving the volunteer the ability to save people's lives. It's like giving someone to fish. How do you say it? The rod to fish. And he goes, makes his own. This is giving someone a defibrillator to go save other people. And he's literally been using it for many years. And then when these ambicycles came in, and my dream about having ambicycles all over Israel, I realized these ambicycles are going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. It costs $36,000 an ambicycle. 
I started doing a very smart thing, but it's a very Jewish thing too. We name every ambicide. And every ambicycle and every distributor gets a name, or every ambulance, whatever we have, we have a name on it. And the people who donated that ambicycle starts getting updates on it all the time. Just save someone, they get an update. The Schwartz family from uh, Boston who lost Ezra. Yeah. Actually, my wife's cousin. So, yeah. Ezra okay. Yeah. I, last night I was in the, you know, Elad, the city there in Tel Aviv, and I see Ezra Schwartz's ambicycle. Yeah. He donated an ambicycle when he was 12 years old, almost 13 in the apartment spot. He donated it together with his friends. They were two, three friends. They donated an ambicycle instead of getting gifts for the Unbelievable. And they got the updates all the time. And now the family decided to donate a memory together with his friends. And they're all here dedicated. So we, we actually get a lot of people to connect and they get updates about it. Now, the other thing we did is to keep this organization growing. We have 4,000 volunteers. We actually sell these volunteers to donors. So supporters can be partners. So you say, you know what? Michael, who lives in Tel Aviv, could be, I want to adopt his work for this year, 2018, costs $2,600. I'll take Michael and myself. And Sarah from Aranana will be adopted by another person. Or some people will say, you know what? I want 10 volunteers. I had a guy, I just met him right in the, before the New Year's. He said, I want to adopt five Arabs and five Jews. Wow. And people said to me, I want to adopt a Sparty volunteer, a Shkenazi volunteer, a woman, a man. We have. It's like designer our- babies, it reminds me. <laughs> you know, I want my son to be, uh, you know, <laughs> this IQ. And <laughs> you can choose who you want to adopt, who do you want to adopt? But the funny part is, you can't choose who he's going to say or she's going to say. Like the volunteers you adopt will never choose who to save. They could say man or woman, Jews and non-Jews, religious and secular. This is why we change the name from the, from Hatzalah to United Hatzalah. Because we actually unite so many types of people together, and they save people they don't even know. I mean, it's amazing to see. I have a guy who's a Ayim Matias, a volunteer of ours. He's a settler from Hebron. And he's a hardcore settler. You'll see his picture and say, oh, this guy lives in a mountain somewhere. <laughs> uh, uh, he's a great guy. You just see his face. You see an angel. And Chaim, who's going, driving next to the old city of Jerusalem, next to Damascus State, and he gets a call of a guy who was electrocuted right in the middle, smack in the middle of Ramadan. And you don't hang out there for fun in the Ramadan area in time, but there's a, a very dangerous place there. Many people were killed there in that area, especially in Ramadan. And Chaim did not think twice. With their long beard and payas and big yarmulke, he drove with his ambicycle inside that area, in the shuk, took out his medical equipment in the back of the ambicycle, took his defibrillator and started doing CPR on this young man, 36 years old. He did CPR on him, shocked him with a defibrillator, and woke him up. Literally brought him back to life. The guy was dead. Later on, I told Chaim, you know what? You did such a great mitzvah. You saved someone's life. doesn't matter who he is, Jews and non-Jewish. He's God's creation. You know, under the skin, we have the same color. Let's go visit him at home after he's released from the hospital. And it was like such a beautiful thing to go together with Chaim. And we went to this guy's house. He had Israeli television come with us, Channel 10. And they just saw the scene of five Palestinian kids jumping on Chaim, touching his beard and pants, and saying thank you and kissing him for saving their father. 
What a beautiful thing to see it. It was such a beautiful tikkun olam, like you say, Kiddush Hashem, of seeing Chaim there and, and hugging these Arab little kids who normally would never have any relationship, not only not have a relationship, but have hatred, but this united atzalati connects people. And that's why I'm still doing it. Unbelievable. You, you referenced a few times that you've been able to reach out beyond the core demographic of volunteers, that you've moved into uh, the Arab sector, into other populations within Israel that were not traditionally involved with the organization. What was that process like? Was that a difficult hurdle? Was that, did you have to overcome skepticism or, or cynicism? You know, it was, it was an interesting process because we were always Jewish. We started as a Orthodox group. It imports secular Jews. You know, in Israel, it's either secular or Orthodox. Very little reform or conservative. So it's either either secular or Orthodox. And there wasn't a lot to do with each other, unfortunately. And, and this was a beautiful connection between the secular and Orthodox people to have them together. Saving lives, going to courses together, doing the courses, doing the training. It was beautiful. Then I had a two Arabs who came to the uh, Moral Leon and Muhammad Al-State came over to me. They said they want to join the United Hatzalah. It wasn't even the United Hatzalah, it was called Hatzalah. And I said, well, it looked weird. You know, like, it was like, how do I get rid of these people? Like, literally, <laughs> you know, like, I wasn't sure if they came. You know, like, it was like weird for me. And I didn't have a connection. And Muhammad said, you know, my father collapsed in East Jerusalem without the Torah. And he had a cardiac arrest. 55 minutes we were waiting for an ambulance. The whole time we saw him on the floor. The only one who came to help us was a woman, a Jewish woman who lives in the community there. They have one Jewish family in the area who ran. She's a, she's a nurse in the hospital. She's a little woman. She couldn't do much. She couldn't, she didn't have an affiliate, but she was working for all that time. She almost died herself, but almost had a heart attack herself because she was working so hard that she couldn't save my Said my father was 52 years old and died. Left all the kids off, things his wife and a widow. And he said, I want to become a volunteer of Atzala and I want to save lives of everyone. The same way this woman came to save lives in my community when my father collapsed and she, I'm, I'm Arab. She had nothing to do with us, but she heard the yelling of my mother when my father collapsed. So she came to run to help. I want to do the same to you guys. I want to, I want to try helping saving lives. And I said, wow, you know, when I created this organization, it wasn't about saving Jewish lives. It was about saving lives. So I told him, Ahalam Asalam, in Arabic, you know, you're welcome. Shalom Alechem in Hebrew. I said, come join us. And he brought 25 volunteers with him. And the funny part of it is in the beginning, it was very hard, a different culture completely. These guys are completely different. They don't eat yourself the fish. I was shocked. <laughs> They're completely different, these guys. They have different cultures. They eat differently. They talk differently. Different languages. And we have some other politics between us. I don't want to get Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but I was talking about compassion to them, about saving lives. And, and we were just talking about saving lives. And they, they were all in. And not all of them knew what volunteering means. We had one guy, an Arab guy, he was so excited to volunteer. He didn't really know what volunteer means. He said to me, let me ask you a question. I said, yes. He says, I want to volunteer every day. How much money am I getting for volunteering? <laughs> so I told him, listen, <laughs> I explained what volunteering is. And he liked it. And he said, okay, I mean, I said, just don't quit your job. Continue doing your job. If something happens, we'll let you know. You won't have your job. 
help someone and then go back to work. The whole idea of volunteering 24-7, you need a job that allows you to go out to calls for 20 minutes, a half hour. If you don't have a job like that, you can't volunteer less. And he liked that idea and he joined. And I can tell you that five years after that, my father had a cardiac arrest at home on Shabbat afternoon. And my father, I love very much, I saw him collapse, lose his pulse. Literally, this would be, quote, dead 50 years ago, quote, 80 years ago. My father was on the floor, and I forgot everything I knew. And three volunteers came immediately to help my father. One of them was a friend of mine, uh, Yaakov Rosenberg, who was a rabbi. He was across the street. Another guy, he was having Shabbat lunch. The other guy is a volunteer of ours, uh, Avi Miller, who uh, is a singer. The third guy is one of these Arab volunteers, Muhammad, who came to save my father. And he was on the area. He was in the area driving his car on the way to work. So they only three met together in my father's home. They did CPR on my father and brought him back nine minutes after. And that's that's why I love this organization so much because it's really changed my life too. It's not only I changed other people's lives. My life's became better. I know that there's been beyond just Israel, there's been a lot of acclaim and a lot of efforts made towards contributing the incredible resources of this organization abroad, uh, sending delegations to other countries. What's that all about and, and what's that experience been like? Well, it's amazing because this idea exists in the Jewish communities in New York for many years. You live in Baltimore, and the Jewish community in Baltimore have it. Silver Spring, but close. <laughs> but uh, many places around America, the Jewish communities have itself. But when this idea of United Metzala happened, volunteers with motorcycles were not existing anywhere with technology to locate the closest volunteers. It really became a grassroots organization of a good, disruptive organization. Literally, it changed the way life saving was done everywhere. So many countries and cities approach us for help to say, how do we bring this to our country? Uh, and we help many Jewish communities also to help it in, in Panama and Brazil and other places that we helped started. But more importantly, this idea was a Tikkun Olam because so many places that are not have Panamanian Jews. I just got a message from my friend from India who started this organization in India. He's Muslim and he heard about this when I spoke with Ted, who was there. And he said, I want to join this idea. I want to start this. He said, I have an ambulance company in India. We don't save lives. We transport people. How do we save lives? I said, we need to have this. We can't just have ambulance. We need ambulance. We don't want to place ambulance right now. We need to transport someone to the hospital when he needs. And he created this in India very successfully. And we have this in, uh, in Jersey City. And we're working in other cities in America, in, in Manchester now, and many places around the world. They invited me to talk about this, and they're starting this either by themselves or with our help. And I'm very proud of it because this idea we're not keeping for ourselves. It's not like our little secret. We want millions of people to be saved that otherwise would not be saved by this idea. Volunteers getting there nine seconds only because they're close and they're around and they can stop everything they're doing and get to that person. This thing could happen anywhere. It could be in a city, like Mel it could be in Melbourne which is the Jewish community have it, but it can be any city around the world, every village, every community, even like 30 people living in a community. One of them is an EMT. And if someone knows, they call that person for help. And he's willing to stop his, you know, my wife's a volunteer now. Last night, three o'clock in the morning, she jumps out of bed. I, what's wrong? She said, I have an emergency. 
she has her own radio next to her. She got a call because they had an emergency and she, she was chosen by the computer to receive the call. So I said, well, what's the call? She says, you don't need to go. We have enough people going. And she left. Three o'clock in the morning. Well, when your wife leaves you three o'clock in the morning, you should ask questions. But we all have to. <laughs> well, Ellie, just in, in wrapping up, I guess a two-part question. Number one is, what's the relationship between your organization and the, for example, Magenda Birado? Do they acknowledge that you're really kind of helping each other? And also the Hatsala that exists in America, is there any formal relationship there? Uh, that's the first part. The second part is more interesting to me is what is sort of the next chapter for United Hatsala? What do you want to do next with the organization? You don't strike me as someone who's uh, just sitting around, you know, on his ambicycle. I'm sure you're trying to grow and do more. So where are you going with it? Well, relationship between us and hotel organizations in, in the world, in America and other places, are really nice, friendly organizations. Each one is an individual on his own. We have a very good friendship. We had a volunteer today from South Africa who came to visit and from Australia. Uh, they come visiting us all the time. We have training for groups of volunteers from hotel around, around the world who come to Israel. And we have a very nice and friendly relationship. But each one is on their own. And each one is taking care of their own budget and everything. So it's all separate as private organizations. In Israel, it's a more complicated situation. Look, we grew within Magenda. We like the organization, very poor organization. But it's the material of how it's built. It's the, we are a volunteer organization. We have two people working here to run the whole thing. Where we look at the idea of Hatzalat is that being the first response until they show up. But Magendavidov is not the only organization in Israel. They have 140 ambulance organizations. People don't hear about them, but they have, in the negative, 20 different organizations of ambulances. They have actually the same amount of ambulances as Magendavidov and other ambulance companies together. So we try working with everyone. And because we try working with everyone, the big one says, if you want to work with us and get our emergency calls, you have to work only with us. You have to uh-huh. work only us. We want to be the gap between a call coming into any emergency, then till they show up. So the relationship with us and my kids on the road, on the field is great. Between the organizations, we have some difficulties, but it's good because it brings better results for the people. In the end of the day, my kids and other ambulance organizations are getting better. Because of us. A little bit capitalistic in a sense. Yeah, because don't forget, we don't charge, so they can't charge too much. They charge, they, some places they went down in price. And they started getting ambulance motorcycles. They started getting bicycles like we have for many years and other things. They're becoming better because in the end of the day, we were getting so much credit for what we're doing, and it didn't look good that we we're the only ones getting it. So who gains from it? Really, it's a great, and I spoke about this today, I think the fact. But the relationship between us and the game development is always, we, we started only a couple of years ago and we grew all around the country. And they're there almost 100 years, this organization. It's a big, massive organization. Their budget is 100 times bigger than us. And they are looking at us growing and makes them become better. And who gains from it? The people. Today, someone will get better service because of the other organizations existing. If that only one, it would not be good for the people. And I say this everywhere. Hospitals in Israel, they have in Jerusalem two big hospitals. If they had one hospital, it would be terrible for the people. 
even two is not enough. I think they should have a third hospital. They should never allow them to, to merge. Is that your next project, Ellie? <laughs> no, my next project in Israel is a 911 system. After I heard South Sudan has a 911 system, I want to have a 911 system in Israel. What do you mean? It doesn't exist? It doesn't exist. We actually operate as 911 in Israel. People call us one, two, two, one. We call an ambulance. We call fire. We call police if needed. We do all the work. We set up, sell up. We do everything for you. We help you do CPR on the road. Our number is one, two, two, one in Israel. Today, if you want to call ambulance, police, and fire, it's three different numbers. Really? But that's, again, because of the unions and because of the power they have. And the police actually are for having one, one number, but I don't think it's going to be so easy, but this is one of my goals. I want to make everyone in Israel united when it comes to saving lives. And I actually thought about it, and I said many years ago, could you imagine, God forbid, someone you know, someone who needs help, someone, I don't want to say any names or anything, because it's, you know, someone needs help, and you have seconds to save that person. What do you do? You call an ambulance. That ambulance gets the call. They keep the information to themselves. Because it's not a government. None of the ambulance services in Israel, including the Gennadome, are not government. So one of the things that bothers me very much, why don't they call the national radio and say, I'm sorry to interrupt the national news. You're talking about politics and other BS stuff. Now, someone needs help now, and within three minutes a day, could you please send an ambulance to send anyone who knows how to help? Could you go and save that person? So that's what I mean. When I want to do a world, a world like a WWW is for internet. I want to make a world life-saving organization, meaning you can be from anywhere. You can wear any symbol you want. But when someone needs help, you should know about this person. That, they, that person should know about people needing help. And you can be from China. You can be from Brazil. If you're staying in the King David Hotel, you're a doctor from Brazil or China. You should know about this person that needs help. And that's my goal of making a worldwide organization of the same idea, United Italy, uniting everyone for saving lives. Incredible. Ellie Beard, tell us a little bit about where we can find more online, where we can learn more about United Hatsala if somebody wants to contribute or participate in any sort of meaningful way. Uh, where can they do that? So thank you very much for that. That's a great, great thanks for the opportunity. So you can go on our website, which is israelrescue.org, and all the information is there, how to learn more about the information of the organization, but also how to support. A lot of different ways of supporting the organization, also spreading the word. You could take this broadcast and spread it all around and uh, get more people to hear about United Hassan. Um, another thing, you could go on TED, watch my TED Talk. I gave a TED Talk a couple of years ago, and it's viral, so you share it and get more viral. And just come to Israel, learn more about come on the trips that you make. That's a good way of supporting United Tele. A lot of the people who actually came on your trips are involved. So yep. And it's a great way of getting connected. So just spread the word, support either financially or morally, or just come volunteer. Amazing. Ellie Beer, United Hatsala, what an unbelievable mission and story. Thank you for sharing it with us today. And have a wonderful 2018, hopefully a year where we won't need the services but where we can be secure in the fact that those services exist and you should be blessed with the ability to save many, many lives. Thank you so much.
This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.